0: Well, good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Bob Dullman. I'm a trustee here at the Pratt, and it's my pleasure to introduce my friend of, I guess, 40 years, Ted Vantillas. Um, Ted doesn't need much introduction in Baltimore. Um, in fact, wherever I go someplace with him, i got to talk in the mic because they're recording this. Um, where, whenever I go someplace with him, um, people always come up and greet him as their long-lost brother. And um, about half the time after they've done that, Ted turns to me and says, who was that guy? <laughs> he knows a lot of people, and um, I can't blame him for not remembering them all. Um, Ted's had a, uh, an incredible uh, career. Um, just a brief list, he's been a reporter, a congressional aide, a political campaign director, Baltimore County Executive, candidate for governor. We don't talk much about that. (laughs) I worked hard in that campaign. (laughs) Publisher, banker, television, political analyst, um, and you name it. Probably been a bullfighter, lumberjack, and astronaut, but we don't know about those things. If you um, read any biographical material about Ted, he always mentions that his mother wanted him to be the first Greek-American president. There's still time, but in the meantime, um, he's written a book about the presidency, a satirical novel that he's going to tell us about tonight. Ted Venatolis.
1: Thank you, Robert. You forgot one important thing. Bob and I are business partners. We do go back a long time. And uh, his wife, Sandy, and I and our family have been close for many, many years. In fact, Bob, you were our labor commissioner in Baltimore County. First one, as I recall. Right. Right? Um, and a trustee of this wonderful institution. I have to tell you, this um, uh, library brings back great, great memories for me. I can remember... First of all, as a kid coming here, we lived in uh, East Baltimore, and this was the main place that we would come to for our research. Um, And uh, I wrote a book. It was a nonfiction book way, way back, God knows how many years. It was a history of the two elections that fell to the House of Representatives. It's happened twice in the Congress, the House. When no one gets a majority of the electoral votes, the House of Representatives picks a president. You can imagine that today, but at that time, The House uh, was an electoral tie. Nobody had a majority. Went to the House of Representatives, and it took them 36 ballots and about six weeks to pick Tom Jefferson over Aaron Burr. Now think about that. It was one hell of a choice, but it took them 36 ballots to get there, which is rather remarkable. But anyhow, I came by once, and there was my book and picture in a window at Pratt Library. And I really felt proud. I felt that was the greatest thing. There was my picture in a window at Pratt Library. That was really big. Uh, and and um, I remember that. That was a long, long time ago, but it, it, it said something about my kind of relationship with this library. And then when I became county executive, um, I made it a point. First thing I did, I asked the library director, Charlie Robinson, Uh, Chris, you and her may remember him from Baltimore County, terrific library director, to assemble a group of books for me that I could keep in my office, history books, books that they recommended, that they were aware of, that I could then hold on in the office and read them as I could, and they stocked my shelves in there with books from the library, which really was very pleasing to me. And I made a point to visit every library in the county, every branch, uh, we don't have quite as many as we have now, but there were branches all over, and I made it a point to visit and to chat with each of the, uh, have a little chat with the people who worked there, the librarians and the staff at that time. So uh, there's a sensitivity with me in the library, and I'm, uh, uh, so I'm really pleased to be here. Um First, let me just say one thing about the prelude to this book, and then I'll just spend a f- few minutes just reading something, Bob, and then we can open it up to questions of what they might have. Um, we have a very unusual political climate today. It's not always been this way. It's a very difficult climate. Uh, there's a lot of bickering and partisanship and confusion over what's right and what's wrong, and uh, there's a kind of a lack of civility. That's unfortunate. But it will pass. There's been incivility in politics for many, many years. So it's not unusual that this exists. We get over it somehow, we make it, and we move on. Uh, I don't know whether it's because uh, God looks over America or what, but for some reason we seem to, to move on. So this era will pass, but it is a little rough, and many of us uh, have trouble dealing with it and not quite certain about who's right and who's wrong and uh, I'm a Democrat so I know where my head is but uh, but uh, we make en- enough mistakes ourselves and uh, so but anyhow um, when I st- what 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 interested me was watching these folks these high-level political personalities risk their whole future on playing around and you wonder why whether well, did they think that they weren't something wasn't going to happen, it uh, was—it's kind of was interesting to me. And one wonders what causes it. And I've always felt that I call it the fool of it uh, theory, where they get in office, everybody is saying, yes, congressman wants this, yes, the senator wants this, yes, the senator's going to be a little late, hold his dinner, yes, can you be right outside so that the senator can run into your car because it's raining? All this, yes, 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 you know, they're doing it. And you get full of it. You think, you know, you're, you're the one. You do anything you want. And it leads to this kind of reckless behavior. And it prompted uh, me to do, write a little novel about it. It's a spoof. It's a satire. It's meant to be hu- humorous. It's not war and peace. And those of you who have read it or intend to read it, I hope you enjoy. We've got loads. Of, we went on the Greta Van Susteren Show. And I can tell you, I, you know, the, the, I don't know how popular she is, but we're getting emails from all over the country from Mississippi, from Nevada, from Oregon, from South Dakota. I mean, they come in. And most of them have been essentially the same. Uh, we had an email the other day from a doctor, then you'll recall. He said, I laughed so hard, my wife kicked me out of bed. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, so there is, apparently, people do <laughs> appreciate the humor, because I would not want anyone to take this book seriously. Because there are some discussions of political personalities, not any that we know. So I'm going to read you just one or two brief sections and and, uh, entice you to want to read further. The book is very simple. A woman comes home, finds her husband fooling around, and throws him out of the house. There's a problem. She is the first lady. He is the president. She throws him out of the White House. Now that's a gutsy thing to do. It's not something that often happens. She chose at that moment to stand up for her dignity rather than for her man, which is what we've seen a lot of in these last couple of years in terms of elected officials or celebrities, Tiger Woods and all that. There's some kind of backlash now where women seem to be doing more standing up, more uh, uh, fighting back rather than, than standing up. But in any event, now she's got him, she's thrown him out of the White House um, she just kind of confused. She doesn't, you know, she did this thing and miraculously, and she, she hasn't quite thrown him out yet. She's caught him. She runs up to the bedroom, and here's what takes place um, after the president has been caught in the Oval Office. Okay. <clears throat> I was thinking a lot more courageously than I was feeling. When I looked up, he was at the door. His unbuttoned shirt was hanging sloppily over his plaid boxers. One foot had a black sock bunched at the ankle. The other was scrunched under his armpit. His hair was a mess, a flash of lipstick colored his cheek. At this particular moment in history, the leader of the Western world uh, did not look like somebody anyone would call Mr. President. No matter, I didn't look any better. POTUS, that's Washington lingo for President of the United States, wanted to talk to FLOTUS. That's me. I'm sorry, Jessica, he sniveled. Get out, I replied quite forcefully, considering I was ready to sob hysterically. I'm really sorry, he moaned, begging for forgiveness. His head slumped and his shoulders sagged like a losing quarterback. Pack, I said bluntly. I'm really, really sorry, he implored. He leaned against the door as if he were ready to weep. My patience was thinning. Holding back my tears was excruciating enough. Holding back my wrath was practically impossible. I moved closer and poked my finger directly into his drooping chest. Put on your clothes, pack your stuff, and get the hell out of here now. I yelled, amazed at my belligerent language, but not quite knowing how else to repulse his boorish tactics and emphasize my point. He staggered backwards, beginning to suspect His crime was beyond contriteness. Don't be angry, honey. Just let me explain. It was nothing. You're overreacting. I took one look at this puny and pathetic figure slumping hopelessly in front of me, and I wondered what it possessed me to marry the man. With as much clarity and dignity as I could muster, considering the circumstances, I said, Listen, scumbag, overreacting is if I were to seize one of those World War II weapons from the case in the map room and blast you to hell. Throwing you out of the house is an act of a sensitive, charitable, and rational person. My flawless logic did not move him. I'm not leaving, Jessica, he announced in a short spurt of decisiveness. After all, I am Lance Billingsley, and I am the president. Well, what can I say? Pulling rank never played well with me and a wimpy politician wearing one sock and one shoe did not add to the majesty of the moment. Clearly the man did not get it. I had no idea who he thought he was dealing with, but I wanted to make one thing perfectly clear. Maybe you are, I proclaimed, but I'm not Eleanor or Jackie or Hillary. And if you don't believe me, just watch. I picked up the phone. Operator, I said. This is the first lady. Get me... The Washington Post. Well, he left, okay? And they moved after some shenanigans and wheeling and dealing. Neither of them wanted the, the world to know about this. He didn't for his political reasons, she didn't because of the humiliation that would occur. So neither of them So they made a deal that he would go over to Blair House and stay over there, and they concocted a scheme that they were restoring the White House. As they did under Truman's administration, by the way. He lived there for three years in Blair House while they were fixing up the White House. In fact, when, the, when he was, they tried to assassinate him, it was at Blair House when I think it was Puerto Rican National, I think, attempted to shoot the president. He was, at that time, he and Bess were staying at, at, the, at the Blair House. So, in any event, they concocted this scheme, and Press Secretary was able to spin it and persuade them all that it was a big, a big thing. Well, there are some twists and turns. And then, a very interesting and peculiar thing happens. Let me find the right section, and we'll, um, I'll read it for you. <clears throat> Again, there are a lot of twists and turns that go on here, but this rather interesting and remarkable thing happens. Finally, I slipped into the old Monroe sitting room what Jackie Kennedy had turned into the treaty room. My eyes leaped across the great treaties hanging on the wall on the solitary pewter inkwell on the huge conference table holding the quill that was used to sign the peace treaty ending the Spanish-American War. It had also been the room that Eleanor Roosevelt used for her press conferences. I thought I was going to cry. When Lance was elected president and I was suddenly thrust into a role I never anticipated, I spent an entire week reading everything I could about Mrs. Roosevelt. I came across the quote she gave to reporters when FDR was inaugurated. But there isn't going to be a First Lady, she said. There's just going to be plain, ordinary Mrs. Roosevelt, and that's that. I wish I had said that, or something like it. I felt I had no right being in the same room, disgracing the principles of this great woman. Maybe I should really toss in the towel. What right did I have throwing out the President of the United States, if and if he, even if he was an adulterer? I knew Lance was no Lincoln. He wasn't even a Harding, but he was still the President. Should I soil the flow of history? Should I have done what no other First Lady had ever done? I thought of Eleanor Roosevelt's grief of discovering her husband died in the arms of another woman. How sad and how strong she swallowed her own hurt to preserve the dignity of her position and the Presidency. The presence of such eminence was imposing. I felt inadequate. You fool, I muttered to myself. It was time to stop this nonsense, to call Lance and ask him to come back. That's what Mrs. Roosevelt would have wanted me to do. That's what being a first lady obligated me to do. After all, it could have been my fault. Maybe I hadn't been a good enough wife. He was the president, and presidents require special treatment. Maybe I had been less flippant, a little less sarcastic, more understanding, and appreciative of the burdens he carried, he wouldn't have looked elsewhere for comfort. But it wasn't in my nature to be a yes person. The day he was appointed to the Senate, it disturbed me that those around him refused to recognize his limited intellect and tepid attention span. In In the White House, the art of sucking up reaches celestial levels, where everyone, I mean everyone, nods approvingly when Lance mutters some inanity as if he were Pericles addressing his fellow Athenians. Maybe I was just rationalizing. Who was I kidding? Giving up life in the White House is not something you readily do. As much as I privately detested the Washington political life, the phoniness and the sucking up, it was impossible not to be taken in by the glamour and the power. The perks for a First Lady were endless. Constant attention, access to the great personalities and celebrities of the world, a life at the center of life. Beyond all that, what happens to a woman who dumps a president? She ostracized. Mm -hmm. Does anyone date an ex-First Lady? Is she marked for life? All of this and finally the nagging desire not to allow what may have been a mistake to wreck our relationship led me to conclude that I should call Lance and work out a detente. On the very desk Eleanor Roosevelt once used, I spotted a phone. I walked over and reached for it. Before I made the call, an eerie noise caught my attention. I looked about and saw nothing. Before I could speak, A voice greeted me. Hello, Jessica. I was startled. Who is it? I demanded. Just me. Eleanor, my dear. Eleanor? Yes, Jessica. Eleanor Roosevelt. This, of course, was observed. The product of my considerably distraught state of mind and entirely too much booze. She had been drinking a lot of vodka in this process. "'What are you doing here?' Mrs. Roosevelt, I asked, "'unable to ignore what I knew was implausible. "'Please call me Eleanor, Jessica. "'I so admired what you've done that I decided to stop by. "'Admired what I've done? "'But how can that be? "'I thought for sure you'd be upset. "'Now I was actually engaged in a conversation. "'It was a matter of time before I would be committed. "'Oh, no, Jessica, you've done the right thing, my dear.' You've done what most of us wanted to do but didn't have the courage to do. He is the guilty party, not you. But you never deserted deserted Mr. Roosevelt. You stuck it out until the end. Times were different then, Jessica. We had a depression and a war, and the poor man, well, you know his physical condition. I stood up to Franklin in different ways. I consider the New Deal as much my doing as his.' Today, a woman can be bolder, should be bolder. Don't give in now. Whoa, I snapped. One thing for Hillary Clinton to have teased about having conversations with Eleanor Roosevelt. Another for an incumbent first lady to actually have them. What was going on? With some resolution, I put down the phone I picked up to call Lance. Instead, I lifted my drink, and for whatever reason, I'm not sure I really knew why, I smiled and and held up my glass in a toast, "'Screw you, Lance.' I paused and added, "'Here's to you, Mrs. Roosevelt, wherever you are.'" (laughs) So the First Lady is not giving in. Now there are a lot of twists and turns that occur, and an incredible, very interesting ending that occurs in the twists and the turns of the other political character and personality. But I'll let you find that out if you decide to read the book. Anyhow, this has been a, uh, I enjoyed writing it, I think as you can tell from uh, my own reading of it. And um, um, it, I hope, I hope leads to uh, other folks in the celebrity world, the world of celebrity, other spouses, to really consider what they do when they uh, support somebody like that who um, has lost his bearings, essentially. Again, as I said earlier, it's a tough political climate. It wasn't like that when we were in politics uh, that we didn't have. But we, I mean, I had a Republican, a couple of Republicans, as you remember, in the council. They were just a couple of real jerks. But it didn't make any difference. They opposed me ideologically on issues. And then at the end of the day, we'd sit around and have a drink. One of those guys I remember, a fellow named Gene Kibby. You remember Gene? He came into my office once and saw all those books on there, and he opposed me for everything. He thought I was a communist nut, okay? So he looked at all those books and said, now I know why you're so left-wing, Venetulis. You read. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a break, (laughs) Gene. But anyhow, we would laugh and have fun about it and know that we were going to go out the next day and fight on whether I should put money in the flood control bill or do this or do that or whether how much I should cut taxes, and whatever. Today, it's, um, it really uh, it behooves us to try to reconstruct some of the uh, earlier uh, less uh, bitter and uh, negative comments that we make about each other. It's good to disagree in a free society, it's terrific. It is not good to do it in a, with a bitterness and an anger and a stubbornness and an obsession. Uh, that you are so totally right that nobody should argue with you. Well, that's crazy. That's absurd. I was the only one who was right when I was in there. <laughs> Those other guys were totally wrong. Okay? So, other than that... So, anyhow, I'm going to stop here and open it up to some questions, okay?
2: Um, this is probably not... Uh, I'm a history major and all. And I, I wanted to get this straight. When, uh, this is probably not the book, about the book, but I have two questions. One is... Um, was Eleanor Roosevelt and first cousins with Franklin or second cousins? They were, I think, second cousins. Oh, they were a little distant. I think it was second cousins. Okay. And, and the other thing about Truman, did, uh, how did he try to shoot him?
1: No, there was a group of Puerto Rican nationalists. And they, uh, I think, wanted Puerto Rico to, to be a become a state. Or, and at that time, Truman opposed it. And in order to – they were a little wacky, and they gathered around – The security at the Blair House was not what it should have been, and it's not what it is today. I mean, it was a little looser. And um, they uh, waited outside uh, for Truman to come out. Uh, He did, uh, but a Secret Service guy threw himself in front of them. He was killed. There was one agent who was killed, but they saved Truman. They grabbed the guys, and they were tried and all that. Uh, But it was an unusual incident. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a second president that was saved, uh, that was nearly assassinated. You know, FDR was assassinated. uh, An attempt was made at his life in Chicago when he was visiting, I think, the mayor or the governor of Chicago. The mayor. And there was a— No, I think it was in Chicago. It was with the mayor mayor of Chicago in Florida. What what happened there? Great to have you history majors here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What happened there? He,
1: uh, they missed. They got the mayor, didn't they? As I recall, they got the mayor. Right, sure, sure. I know know
2: Teddy Roosevelt had something, a pocket protector, and he was Uh, was supposed to have been shot or stabbed. But uh,
1: no bullet would have uh, knocked down Teddy Roosevelt. Well, well, one (laughs) out of four presidents,
2: (laughs) I read this now because I I teach this. Cannon may have done it. I tell this to the school kids I work with. That, that's a dangerous occupation because one out of every four presidents have either been attempted to be killed or killed. Oh, I, I or died in office. It it. It one out of four. It is.
1: We have a lot of security today, but any one person at some point, if they wanted to do willing to give up their life, you could...
2: And is this your first novel?
1: My first novel, yeah. Not my first book, but my first novel.
0: Yeah. I'll ask one. Go ahead, Robert. <laughs> um, I just wondered um, what, how you thought... Um, the power of the presidency has changed given the antipathy of the two parties in Congress. I think one of the things, you know, the, the president always, I, I thought, um, could, you know, call in the members of Congress, that the leaders of both parties kind of bang their heads together, use the bully pulpit, um, and sometimes um, get compromises and results. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore.
1: They were the good old days, Bob. They were the good old days. You, you know, recall Lyndon John. But you can go well before that. Listen, how do you think Teddy Roosevelt got the Panama Canal built? I just finished a great book, and Bob, you would love it, on the Panama Canal and how it got constructed. But he banged some heads. He had to go against the United States Senator who was determined that that canal would be built up in Nicaragua. Okay, he was absolutely determined. And it all started, and Teddy Roosevelt had supported that in the campaign and had to turn against this guy who controlled the committee that was going to fund and approve the uh, project. So he had to bang some heads together. I think part of it is um, we've had two interesting presidents here. George Bush, who was not engaged in the real guts of the presidency. He had delegated most of it. And he had Republican control, of the the first term control, then he lost control of it. And after he lost control of it, his presidency really deteriorated. Of course, a lot of it because of the war and what, what had happened there. And now we have President Obama, who has a very conciliatory personality. He appears not to enjoy controversy. And I think that that's been one of the problems of his leadership. I think the minority party has sensed he doesn't want to fight and when they sense that when they smell it they take advantage of it and i believe they have taken advantage of him and it's taken about a year for him to realize it that these folks are not going to endorse any of his programs now they may use whatever reasoning they want they want to cut the budget they want to you know don't want to spend a lot of money uh, the program is too big. You shouldn't allow it to be passed by a majority. That, to me, is the most specious thing. I mean, that's with the whole country. PTAs operate that way. Supreme Court operates that Your civic club operates that way. They call it reconciliation. It's, that's a, just a fancy Washington word for a majority voting on something, up or down. We're going to pass it, we're not. But in any event, um, he only until recently has shown that he's prepared to fight. He's a great communicator. But his communication has been um, confusing, never really explained uh, what's really the greatness of his bill. It's a really remarkable effort to reform this whole program, and it hasn't washed. The Republicans controlled the dialogue, the death squad, the death, what was it, the death panels. I mean, that's just... Absolutely ridiculous. But worse, I mean, they've come up with these wonderful slogans, and they really have stolen the the issue. So it may be, Bob, that the president sees the power um, have changed in terms of their relationship with the legislative branch. Um, uh, uh, otherwise, I don't. I mean, you think Lyndon Johnson would have tolerated this? I mean, he got the civil rights bill through with with a handful of southerners running the committees it was quite remarkable how he did that i mean he didn't these guys were not northeast liberals they were southerners deep ingrained southerners who ran the major committees but he figured it out sam rayburn uh you can name some of these folks but um So I don't know. I don't know. You know, I think it it works in cycles. That's how I would conclude. I really believe there's a rhythm to the American political system, and uh, we were arguing about an imperial presidency a few years ago, remember? You know, the president has too much power. Arthur Schlesinger wrote that book, Presidential Power Has Gone Too Far. And uh, and now I think we're at a point where uh, Obama gave up some of his power. First, when he allowed said to the Congress, you draft the bill for reform. He didn't do it. He turned it over to them. Now, because he had a majority, maybe that was a wise move. But inevitably, now we know that it wasn't so hot that he probably should have put something on the table or done it in smaller increments, smaller volume.
0: If if any of you want to read a very, uh, listen to a very interesting exercise in uh, presidential power, listen to the Johnson tapes. Sometimes. Oh, aren't they great? They're unbelievable.
1: They are just terrific. They're better than the Nixon tapes, I think. They really are.
2: T- Ted, my question would be, what, what do you think that Obama should do? And I, I want to say first that I like the fact that he wants to be conciliatory. I, I like that. And how can he exert power without sacrificing what he is?
1: That is a great question. That's a great question, Christy, because that is we all, I'm delighted that he has that kind of personality in many ways. But that's not apparently the kind of out-and-out uh, out decisiveness and spine that you need uh, as president when you're dealing with uh, folks who have essentially um, allowed extremist ideology to take over their thinking. Uh, And they have unified. You know, uh, when you see how the bills are passed, all the Democrats, there's a few Democrats who'll vote with the Republicans on many bills. There's no Republican who shifts and votes with the Democrats. None. They have agreed and have concluded the best strategy for them to regain power is to not support the president. And they've made that calculated decision. And by the way, they're doing okay with that. I mean, it isn't a bad strategy at this point. And believe me, they're not going to negotiate with Obama when he's down. They weren't negotiating when he was up. But the idea of being conciliatory, trying to bring people together, it was excellent. He won his campaign on that. And I think that's why he was trying so hard to do it. But you have to be careful. I think he's waited too long. I think now he... The other mistake, I think, in terms of what he did, at least I think, is I was, we were big supporters. My wife was for Hillary early on, and she's still for Hillary. <laughs> but, but we had a split household. I was for Obama. I think, the, I think one of his most egregious mistakes was allowing the New York guys to determine the nature of the bailout. He had all... His advice was coming from the same crowd, the guys who had been in Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, in the Federal Reserve, in all that. And the result was nothing, literally nothing, was done to provide jobs and to stop and to help people with their mortgages. That at least parallel to bailing out the big bankers one would have hoped that it had been an enormous effort to offer some kind of New Deal relief for the folks who were really suffering, the jobs. And now, of course, they're trying to get jobs, but it's too late. People are angry. You read about some of these people who are engaged in the Tea Party movement, and you read about them. A the guy who's 55 years old, and he says, you know, I'm here. Why are you here? Well, I've never done this before. He says, but I lost my job and I don't have any work, and I've tried to get work, and I can't get it, and now I can't pay my mortgage, and they're taking my house away. Well, that person is angry. That person is just not mad. That person is really angry and is going to take it out on somebody. And there's too much of that. And, of course, the uh, opposition, the loyal opposition, has played on those fears and that anger. This guy who flew that plane into the IRS building. I mean, you got to think about that. Yeah. Think about that. You're flying a plane into the IRS. There's, a, there's something going on here that we ought to be careful. It reminds me in some ways of the 60s when you had the John Birch Society and you had the extremists out there. And they, uh, they, they I don't know if you remember, they beat Adlai Stevenson up when he went to Dallas. He was ambassador to the UN, he took a trip to Dallas. He came back and said, Mr. President, don't go there. And he went because he was trying to put Lyndon Johnson and Ralph Yarborough, I think, was the liberal, trying to get them together in preparation of his next campaign. And so he had to go to Texas to try to do that. But it reminds me a lot of that
2: kind of an environment out there, it's too mean. Uh, Slightly different, um, in relation to the evolution of media. You know, we're we're watching newspapers go through changes. I was television. wondering when you'd ask yeah. us. to ask about so, that. So, so I'm I'm kind of wondering how do you see the uh, the people's role in their government and <clears throat> our government changing as media and communication techniques change? Oh, I thought
1: you were going to ask about the Sun Papers. Um, well, that that is uh, A lot of, yeah yeah that is um, well. Uh, first of all, there are, the, in some ways, there aren't any filters anymore. You get your news directly on the Internet or that little thing that you carry and talk to. There, that is what is so frightening when you, particularly the young people and now many in our generation, you get anything they want on that thing, they can click, click Google, and they can get the New York Times, they can get the Sun Papers, they can get the CNN, right there. Now, what are they looking at? They're looking at headlines, mostly. But they're getting informed in their own way, and there's no one telling them how to be informed. On the other hand, we have these cable outfits, and what's happened with them? Each station has its own side. There's the Keith Obermans and the Chris Matthews, and then there's the Bill O'Reillys, and there's that fellow Glenn Beck. I mean, there's, and they're shouting at each other. There isn't any light. I mean, CNN tries to provide some, they've got some great reporters who are on that. I think it's more difficult for the public. I think that we get more information. It isn't a lack of information today. I think you can read some of, and even some of the papers of the New York Times. You can read the New York Times. You know all you have to know about things and the Washington Post. You can also read Politico, the, the blogging outfits, the Daily Beast, the Huffington Post, particularly on national level. There's not anything as strong on a local level. I think Baltimore Buzz tries. The real issue in my own mind is not that we don't have information, it's, it's how do we organize that information in our own minds and who's helping us organize it. And that's what the newspapers did. Before, maybe they didn't do it right, and maybe the headlines are wrong and people on the left would complain that the Sun was a liberal uh, conservative paper, and people on the right would say the Sun was a liberal paper. I, I think most of these papers, even with their ownership, were essentially attempting to provide, to organize, to accumulate, organize, and then distribute information in a way that we could digest it properly. If we lose the newspapers, we lose all that organized approach to news. I worked on television for many years. What did the news directors do? They picked up the morning paper, clipped it, gave it to a reporter, and said, go cover the story. Without the morning paper, they wouldn't have had any stories to cover. What does radio do? Same thing. Chris Matthews, how does he get his information? He reads the New York Times, the Washington Post. He's getting it. He's just not, doesn't have it. He's getting it. And most of it, if you Google an issue, you're going to get newspaper articles or magazine articles. All that is free. Free. We gave it away. What a big mistake. And now rad revenues are down. The economy, advertisers have all these options. You got the Internet. They got the cell phone. They're going to have more where they can advertise and not just in newspapers. And no one wants to pay for the access to the Internet because they're so used to getting it free. At some point, that's going to have to change. I think the newspapers may... We've been looking at the Sun Papers for three years now. When it started, it was a half-billion-dollar enterprise. That's what it was worth. And the banks, of course, were prepared to finance 75% of it. Today, you couldn't get a penny from the bank to finance any newspaper acquisition, and the Sun is not worth a half-billion dollars. I mean, and, and uh, of course, its parent company. company is in bankruptcy. So we're still interested. We're waiting for the bankruptcy process to end and see where the paper is.
0: But I think it's confusing
1: for citizens today. It really is. Yes. Joan? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bob. Well, I've got to follow my instructions. You're away from Mr. Goodell. Right. Right. Uh, I just wanted to back on the part about the um, Sun Paper, which is why I'm here, because I saw you on State Circle. I got deleted. For me, personally, the Sun paper, there's too many transplants here, and when I read the articles I read, they don't know this, they don't know that, they don't make the connection. When I saw you, I said, oh, my gosh, here's a man that knows this town, he knows the people, he knows this. Secondly, even though I know it's a dying market, Industry, yeah. how is Ted Benatoulos going to battle this, and I'm looking for you to be whatever to do that. Joan, I have to tell you, you sound like my wife. (laughs) Why are you doing this? You don't need this. We've got a beautiful daughter. We have a wonderful life. Who do you want to get entangled in an industry that could be like the horse and carriage? I mean, uh, we don't know. Uh, The reason was Bob uh, Embry and Walter Sondheim, great folks. Looked at this years three years ago when we started was because we felt that our local paper ought to be locally owned. That would have do a lot better, as you said, if the folks knew where Towson was, exactly. and Pikesville was, and East Baltimore was, and where Highlandtown was, and where the Italians grew up, and the Greeks grew up, and uh, you know, we 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 knew that. Um, and we had a sense of what was on the minds of people, and we would re-engage the community. In The Sun was a great paper and return some of the great reporters and columnists back to them. That was our objective. It was very simple. The Tribune Company was being sold. Maybe they'd spin off. And oddly enough, there were three buyers of the Tribune. The Tribune Company owns The Sun. There were three buyers at that time. They hadn't picked one. We had contacted all three of them, and two of the three said they would sell us the Sun Papers if they made the acquisition. They really did not want the whole thing. They were going to sell off various pieces. The third one, who was Sam Zell, who got it, did not want to, he wanted to wait for a while before he did anything. Ultimately, we were able to begin discussions with him, but at that time, it was because the the whole business was deteriorating, and there was a question of what would you pay? What would you do with it after you pay? That's the big issue. It can't stay the same. Nobody's going to invest in printing presses anymore. Okay? You're not, so what do you do? You can't make revenue at this point off the Internet. You can't keep printing this thing. You've got to get to the Internet. You've got to get to the new platforms. And how long will it take? And when will the public come along? And as you're bringing them along on one platform, all of a sudden, Apple comes up with something else that can steal your advertising. And then there's Kindle. And then, you know, what's the next thing? We don't, the New York Times doesn't know. Hearst doesn't know. They're all struggling to find out. And no one has broken free, not no one, some have, and begun charging for access to the internet. There's a couple that have, but no one, the big guys haven't gotten there yet. It's very, very
2: difficult. This one back there, Bob. First of all, I was going to say that when Obama bailed out the it could have been a Great Depression, so I think it prevented that. And I think re- you're right about Republicans, that. Uh, Republicans were, were okay with that when it ha- happened. Now they're saying they didn't like it. But the second thing is, the only thing I disagree with, and, and a lot of people do, is all these bonuses being still given out. And the, what do these guys do? They bought down the whole system and keep saying, well, if we don't hire them, they're going to go someplace else, you know? So don't give it to anybody. Don't give it to anybody. Well,
1: you're right about that. They haven't stopped. Uh, these folks have... Uh, pension for greediness that is beyond belief. How many homes can you have? Eight? I mean, what's going on? The bonus is this fellow, is it Blanken, what's his name, Blankenford, the guy at Goldman Sachs, going to get a, um, he's going to make $67 million this year. This is after we've bailed them out, and there's all this public antipathy to these kind of sellers. They don't care. And uh, we made a, a big mistake on that. In fact, um, The last time I was here at the library, Nancy Pelosi was speaking. We grew up with Nancy in East Baltimore. She had her book out at that time and they had a big event for her here. Um, And we were with her afterwards, Tommy, her brother, and myself. And that's the night that she had the call from Paulson about the crisis and that the country, it was a call that he said, the country's coming off the cliff, I gotta meet with you. And the next morning they met and uh, they presented their bailout program, which they resisted. They didn't want any transparency. They wanted to be all secret. They had all kinds of schemes in there that uh, they tried to fight against and, and stop. But in any event, um, I don't think you can change the habits of those folks. I think you've got to regulate them, and they've got to be regulated toughly. Uh, they're about to knock Greece off. Uh, and it was um, the Goldman Sachs people providing Greece. They had a great deal. They gave Greece some of these derivatives. They needed cash. And in exchange, they uh, took all their toll money, anything that they would collect from tolls, uh, Goldman Sachs would get. And it was other big, and all their lottery money. Any lottery money from that point on that came into Greece would go to Goldman Sachs. And in exchange, they gave them a whole bunch of cash and they put them in these derivatives. Well, Greece is going broke today, ten years, seven, eight years later. And it was um, sack, Goldman Sachs, in the meantime, bet shorted Greece, I guess that's what it's called. They, they've bought instruments that would pay them if Greece went under. So they're on both sides of the fence they can't get hurt. And um, uh, the, the, the not, not regulating these folks is we're heading for another disaster four or five years down the road, and it's hard to regulate them. I read the other day that they had, I don't know, 3,000 lobbyists, five lobbyists, six lobbyists for every member of Congress, just on the financial community. Never mind the drug, the pharmaceutical guys. Uh, never mind the insurance guys. You know why this medical... this health bills and going through insurance companies. They are fighting it like hell. Um, It is remarkable, the power they have, and that's a a real issue. And we're guilty of Democrats. We take money from them, too. Don't think for a moment that we don't take money of them. I mean, Chris Dodd, poor Chris Dodd, is right in the center of that whole financial community up there. He's chairman of the finance committee. It's very difficult for him. Uh, Lieberman? Lieberman, I don't even want to mention his name, but Anyhow, it's, um, it, it, is, it, it isn't easy. It isn't
0: easy. I, I just thought, <laughs> let me add to Ted's comments about the local media. I mean, this was years ago when I was a city labor commissioner. We had a, uh, a strike that firemen were going to oh, go right. on strike, right. and we settled it on a Sunday afternoon. So we started calling around. People wouldn't be scared. We started calling around so it would get on TV. People wouldn't worry about Fire protection. So um, we called up the BA. I personally called up the BAL and said, You ought to come down to City Hall. I'm going to tell you about this settlement. And the reporter who was on duty on a Sunday said, Where is City Hall? <laughs> <laughs> the end of the world is near. <laughs> Anyway, thanks. Ted, thank you very much hey, Bob, for being there's here. There's books back here. If you and have there, one, I was, you was just going to say that. If you want to you buy one of the books, they're back here. I'm sure Ted would be happy to sign it for you. And if you have a chance, please fill out this little sheet that's on your seats. We do a lot of programs here at the Pratt, and um, we'd like to know how we can best serve you. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Robert. Thank you.